Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Definitions, the podcast where we crack the lid of the coffin on death, dying and all the morbid morsels in between. Before we go any further, halt and take heed. These are your words of warning. I will be discussing topics of a deathly nature that may be upsetting to some. If you're not in the right headspace to get down and dirty with the maggots today, then that's fine. I totally get it. Sometimes you'd rather dig into a cake and a good romance novel than a freshly dug grave. Now's your time to save yourself. If you're still here, I'll assume you've got your shovels at the ready. And believe me, you'll need them. Because today, I'm asking the question, what does death actually mean? Now, I know at first glance, this seems like a question with a fairly easy answer. Jasper, I hear you cry. Everyone knows what death is. It's when you're not alive anymore. Duh. But have you ever stopped to wonder how that might be measured? We know that our hearts can stop beating. We've all heard the phrase brain dead. But hearts can be restarted, and there are so many systems in the body that continue to work and live, even when the brain seems beyond the point of saving. The Oxford English Dictionary lists four separate definitions for the word death. Firstly, the fact of someone dying or being killed. Secondly, the end of life or the state of being dead. Thirdly, the permanent end or destruction of something. And lastly, the power that destroys life, imagined as human in form, say, the Grim Reaper. But before we go any further and get into all that, I think it's time for a story. In 1674, in the small town of Basingstoke in the south of England, Alice Blunden was about to make a decision that would change her life, and very possibly end it. Alice enjoyed a drink, it seems, and whilst drunk one night, as it is suggested she often was, she sent her maid to fetch some poppy water, or morphine, and on her maid's return, quote, She drank so great a quantity of it that she presently fell into a deep sleep, insomuch that all the people about her concluded her dead, there being not the least palpitation of the heart, motion of the pulses, breathings at her mouth or nose, nor any sensible warmth to be discerned in the whole body. The apothecary was sent for, but no one could rouse her. Her husband, possibly in a state of shock, returned home naturally taken aback by the sudden apparent death of his wife and promptly left again on a business trip. This doesn't seem to have been anything suspicious on his part, though it is alluded to that he needed the money. Funerals have never been cheap, after all. Whatever his reasoning, Alice's husband gave instruction that she was not to be buried until his return in a week's time on Saturday. The family did not listen. Alice was a large woman, who had passed away, it seemed, in the height of summer. Afraid and possibly already acquainted with the unpleasant and sometimes messy result of leaving a corpse out to decompose in the warm weather, and with no way to keep her cool, 
the 1600s weren't exactly known for their fridge freezers, Alice's family ignored her husband's wishes and decided she would be buried the very next morning. It's reported that at the funeral, one bearer remarked to another that he was sure he'd seen the coffin move, as though jostled from the inside. But beyond telling his friend, nothing more was made of the matter. And with that, Alice Blunden was returned to the earth in a wooden box. I imagine the priest would have stood over her grave, read the customary rites scattered the soil, and then the congregation, turning their backs as the grave diggers began the hefty task of filling in the grave, would have assumed that that was that. But for Alice, her funeral was only the beginning of her grisly end. If I had been alive in the 17th century, presuming I hadn't already been murdered for being queer and ignoring the fact that AFAB people weren't allowed to study, I could 100% see myself as a school kid running around in graveyards. Really not that much different from the truth. With that being said, if what happened in the scene I'm about to describe happened to me, agnostic or not, I do not think I would have innocently run around a graveyard ever again. You see, on the Friday after Alice was buried, just one day before her husband was to return home, a group of students were doing just that. Kids really love to talk, yell, argue, pretty much just make noise out of their mouth holes at all times. But on that day, a new and different voice spoke. A voice that emanated from the earth itself a hollow voice, low enough to demand they press their ears to the graveyard dirt in order to hear more clearly as it pleaded, take me out of my grave. The voice repeated its lament, moaning and shrieking as it did so. The children, terrified, ran to tell of what they'd heard, but as often happened, the adults they relayed their story to dismissed their tale as a silly game, a conjured fantasy. It was only after relaying their story to their teacher and eventually convincing him to also lay his ear against the churned churchyard earth that anyone took them seriously. It was then that the doubts began to creep in. Had they checked thoroughly enough for breath? Had her cheeks been still red as though blood ran through her veins? Had the coffin really moved? All of these tiny drops of doubt must have grown into a wave, as before long, the grave was dug up and the coffin pried open. Had she not been dead before, there was absolutely no doubt in people's minds she was now. One report states that, at last the grave being opened and the coffin, which they had no sooner done, but the corpse puffed up as if it had been a bladder, for the joiner had made the coffin so short that they were fain to press upon her and keep her down with a stick while they nailed her up. Hmm. On closer inspection of Alice Blunden's body, it was found horribly bruised and beaten, not by any other, but by her own hand as she desperately fought to free herself from within her coffin. Alice, as was now evident, had been buried alive. And still, this is not the end of our tragic tale. Having decided that the local coroner ought to be notified, 
a night watch was left to ensure that no further harm could possibly come to Alice. But in the middle of the cold, dark night, the waiting men, longing for their warm beds and their warmer wives, deserted their post. And so, when morning and the coroner arrived, it was to a ghastly sight. Alice had torn off her shroud, scratched herself bloody, and beaten her mouth so ferociously there was nothing there but gore. Had the men stayed, she may have survived the night, and a second too hasty declaration of her death. As it was, for Alice, third time was not the charm. Whether through the sheer abuse her body had gone through, or by her own hand, her death, this time, was final. What stuck around in her stead was taphophobia, a very real anxiety that you, a 17th century random, yes, you, may be mistaken to have popped your clogs and be buried alive. If you're familiar with the morbid history of grave robbing, as many are thanks to Burke and Hare, the irony of which being that neither of them ever touched a shovel or a grave, you may know about such contraptions as mort safes, cages over the graves to keep robbers out, or night watchmen who would be paid to stand guard and fend off grave robbers. These all came later on in the Victorian period, when medicine was booming and sourcing bodies for anatomists and surgeons was a big, if highly illegal, deal. The Victorians were fascinated by death and what came after, but like their earlier counterparts, they were also terrified of being buried alive. Being the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, ideas and devices sprang up to try and help you and your loved ones steer clear of a premature burial. A patent granted to Franz Vester in 1868 for an improved burial case laid out the blueprint for a coffin that came equipped with a bell that could be rung should you awaken in your coffin and a ladder to help you make your freshly risen exit. Another device patented in 1882 by John Critchbaum detailed a tube that would connect the coffin to the surface, which the buried person could turn to indicate their aliveness, while also allowing fresh air into the enclosed coffin. There were even coffins made with glass faces, so that the dead could be observed, one idea featuring another tube over this glass panel, down which you could shine a lantern and see if the person looking back at you was alive or not. I'll pass. Thanks. It has to be said, though, that these fears on some level were valid. It's not that Alice Blundons were being buried alive in every town, but modern medical science was still in its infancy, and it only took one wrong or badly educated doctor for a diagnosis to seal your fate. There were no heart monitors, no finger clamps to check your pulse. If they couldn't see it or feel it, that was it. In the case of Alice Blunden, the technique the apothecary used to determine Alice's state was to hold a mirror over her mouth and watch for it to fog with breath. But if the functions of the body are sufficiently suppressed, a la the sedative effects of, say, morphine, it's possible that this technique would not have worked. These days we have all sorts of ways to check for brain waves and detect if a person is living or not. But is it as simple as we think it is? We tend to think in a very binary way about death. You're either dead or you're alive. 
And if you've been to visit a loved one in a funeral home or been to a funeral, I can assure you, they are dead. But what is the point in which we decide someone has crossed over? If it was that easy to get it wrong in the past, how do we avoid making the same mistakes now? Firstly, we have to define what the ending for life means. I can hear you rolling your eyes, bear with me. Is it the last beat of our heart? The last jump of our pulse? Our last blast of neuron fire? Legal death is defined as either the irreversible cessation of the heart or the irreversible cessation of the functions of the brain. So brain death, where the person may look like they are sleeping, marks them as legally dead, though they may be breathing and their heart may be beating. There are also so many ways in which the body breaks down as it gets older and draws nearer to the end of life that sometimes death can't be attributed to just one thing. As Dr. Richard Shepard speaks about in his book Unnatural Causes, our death certificates have to give a cause of death, but sometimes there isn't one to give. The body just gives up or has had enough. We've all heard stories about people's loved ones holding on until that one relative who lives half a world away or until the whole family is there to slip away. I wonder if it's possible that in those moments we have more control than we imagine and of course the only people we could ask about it would have to communicate through a Ouija board. The body itself as well is a microbiome of living organisms. Mites, bacteria, our bodies are teeming with life on a cellular level too. So maybe we don't truly die until all of us, anything that lived as a part of us, is gone. For people opting for cremation, this would be a lot shorter a wait than those buried in the ground. In some societies, the ceasing and deterioration of the physical body doesn't necessarily impact on that person's status as being alive. The Taraja people of Indonesia preserve and feed their departed loved ones, and even when they are entombed, there is a festival that takes place in order to clean out the coffins, to redress and spend a little more time with the dead. The relationship to death here is more intimate than we can understand in the West. The Taraja do not other their dead, and simply see it as another part of life, moving on to the next stage. Now, I'm not necessarily advocating that you dig up your embalmed great aunt, give her a touch up and house her in the spare room, but we can shine a light on our own death practices by observing others. The Taraja people are not ashamed to talk about and live with death. But here in the UK, a somewhat Victorian notion that there is something dirty about death still prevails. Okay, so there is something dirty about death, but it's not the fact that we die. It's what happens to us once we do. Maybe dirty is the wrong word. Messy? Probably. Smelly? Definitely. A bag of liquids and decomposing fleshy barriers? Absolutely. The way that you, as an individual, decompose can be pretty specific, depending on the flora and fauna in your body, any medications you're taking, or even where or how you die. If it's somewhere very dry and arid, your body may dry out and desiccate, essentially mummifying you. If it's warm and wet, decomposition tends to happen much faster. Let's say you're average Joe, gender neutral, naturally, and you've just died a natural death. Congratulations. Whatever makes you you 
has said ta off to heaven, the afterlife, nowhere, your favourite Weatherspoons, etc. And what's left is just the cold, hard facts of decay. Decomposition will begin approximately a few minutes after death. Once blood stops circulating and congeals, oxygen is unable to move around the body and carbon dioxide can no longer escape. This causes an acidic reaction that begins to break down and release enzymes that will then begin to eat your cells from the inside out. This stage is known as autolysis, where the body starts to consume itself. A note on this stage of decomp. If you're a true crime fan, you may be aware of lever mortis, where due to gravity and the fact that blood is no longer being moved around your body by the heart, it sinks to the lowest parts of the body. For instance, if you're lying on your back, the back of the body is where the blood will pull. Or, if a death has occurred via, say, hanging, you will often find the blood rests in the lower parts of the extremities, the hands and feet. After your body has made its first foray into the procession of death, you may reach the stage of rigor mortis, where the muscles start to stiffen. This has on occasion been useful in assisting with the solving of crimes, as if your body attained rigor mortis while sat down and someone were to say, pick you up and leave you on your back in the garden, it would be a pretty decent indicator of foul play. The length of time rigor occurs for, or if it even occurs at all, is again dependent on many factors like heat and conditions. After rigor mortis, the next stage on this morbid roller coaster is bloat. And yes, it is as fun as it sounds. This is where enzymes from the first stage are starting to escape. As the skin breaks down, literally, this can also be seen as what is known as skin slip, where the top layers of the skin come apart and slide away. The gases that have been building in the body leak out, leading to unpleasant odours. Whilst decay certainly has its own olfactory notes, due to the chemical and bacterial similarity in the processes used to make them, both stinky cheese and, in my opinion, even stinkier Korean dish kimchi can come pretty close to the perfume of death. During bloat, it is possible for the body to swell to double its size, but this is extreme. From here, it is highly likely that you will start to go mouldy. Unless embalmed fairly quickly due to chemical changes, your skin will be already covered in a myriad of different colours. Both of these things may be slowed by refrigeration. However, as I've already said, it's highly individual how fast a body gets from autolysis to skeletonization. Before you can get there, though, your body starts to liquefy, which may result in some uh, spillages from the body's orifices. No one said dying was glamorous. But once the wet and sticky part of putrefaction is done and all of the soft tissue is decomposed, you'll be left with your spooky, scary skeleton and, depending on the material, the clothes you were wearing. It's worth noting that lace lasts an awfully long time when buried. But hey, you only die once, why not wear your favourite lace pants? At least the archaeologists who dig you up one day will get a nice surprise. So there you have it. What does death mean? Do you think we're just bags of flesh that cease to be? Or is there something more? While it's a huge topic, I hope you've enjoyed dipping your toe into the decomposing slime and learning more about the physical side of what happens when we die and why it's so important that we do. It's time to pop down your shovel and take a breather. 
If you have any thoughts to share about the podcast or your own impending mortality, drop them in the comments or over on TikTok at Definitions, where I also chronicle and recommend all my favourite morbid books. Any reviews or ratings will go a long way in helping to get this podcast out there, and I greatly appreciate the support. The Definitions podcast is researched, written, and read by me, Jasper Chanter, with music provided by zapsplat.com. Anyway, chop chop, break's over. Pick up that shovel. That grave's not going to dig itself. Bye bye for now, listeners. Catch you on the other side. <laughs>